Hi and welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is Simon Sweetman and this is episode 34. Brought to you by Phantom Bill Stickers and we have support too from uh, Yeasty Boys. Give us some nice beer to drink and Lafare give us some fantastic coffee. Um, I just wanted to mention too that uh, Phantom Bill Stickers of course put up the posters all around town. They do posters for your events and gigs and they also have a a long running uh, poetry on posters campaign and I'm very uh, thrilled and honoured to to be part of that. Uh, a recent poem of mine called Unfriendship has been um, has been selected or or chosen or whatever and, and is up on um, posters around the country. So yeah, that was pretty cool to see. Um, this is a great conversation I had with Delaney Davidson. He's a singer-songwriter, a, uh, a touring musician, a producer. Um, he's done a shitload of work and uh, and sort of in recent years. So. Uh, I won't spoil too much about what we talk about, but he he's kind of went overseas and, and did, did much of his training overseas, playing in bands and learning several instruments and and touring. And now he divides his time between um, New Zealand and, I guess, the rest of the world, spending a lot of time in America. Um, he's currently back uh, playing with his band Manas Del Chango, um, which also includes some of his solo original work too. Um, and we, we reel off the tour dates somewhere in the podcast, but uh, as you're hearing this, he's somewhere in the middle of that, so there's still a few shows to go. He's also back for, I guess, most of the summer and will be part of the um, the last Waltz tour that's playing three centres in New Zealand. Again, we talk a little bit about that, but it's... Um, him and a few other musicians, the Auckland band The Bads, and uh, Barry Saunders and Tammy Nielsen and uh, Adam McGrath from the East, and they're, they're performing the classic concert film The Last Waltz by the band, performing it uh, in its entirety with, with Garth Hudson from the band um, that's coming out to, to do the shows with them. So that's pretty special. That's coming up in November. Um, so yeah, I, Delaney, I only met him one other time, met him very briefly at the start of the year when we first talked about getting together and having a chat because he, uh, all of a sudden he started to really interest me. Not only was he pumping out two or three records a year, but he was producing work. There's the Duets records he did with Marlon Williams and he produced the Tammy Nielsen records and played on them and uh, yeah, he just seemed to be like a sound was emerging that he was very much part of and it had been bubbling away for a few years so I wanted to kind of get to the essence of that and I believe in some way we do there's a lot of insight from him here a lot of experience and uh, a lot of great road stories and there's a lot more I think a lot more music to come from him so uh, yeah this is uh, me talking to Delaney Davidson episode 34 of Sweetman podcast hope you enjoy I guess one of the things I wanted to to try and get from talking to you was sort of where you sprung up from and and you've been um really prolific in a in a short in a short-ish period of time um so how did you sort of and, and i guess you're you're you've done a lot of different things and, and it's all evolving but um you seem to have arrived fully formed in some sense so i want to know where that comes from like yeah that's a good question i was talking a long time to <laughs> To Jeffrey from Southbound about that, and yeah. he talked about, um, I guess, the fact that I did so much of the development overseas. So then yeah. came back to New Zealand and had already been touring Europe for several years and playing in a lot of different bands, doing a lot of recording with Voodoo Rhythm Records artists. And um, yeah, it's interesting looking at that uh, that idea of turning up fully formed, you know, yeah, because yeah. it's, I guess, I, I started late as well, and then. I did a lot of music in Melbourne, 
and then did a little bit of stuff in Auckland, started to really get heavily into country music, mm -hmm. and then sort of took off to live in Switzerland and work there. And that was, I always look at Switzerland in that time when I was playing with the Dead Brothers <clears throat> and on and doing a lot of work with these different bands. That that was kind of like my three-year university training because yeah. uh, that somehow set me up for the rest of the work I've been doing mm. till yeah. now. So where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in Christchurch. Yeah. Down in... Um, down around the Heathcote River somehow, always the houses seem to be around there. And mm. also in Littleton, I spent a lot of time with my dad living in uh, different places. And then kind of came unstuck and he, my father was moving to Melbourne and he said, look, if you want to just try a fresh start, come to Melbourne. So mm. went over there and really fell in love with the town and um, ended up sort of settling there for probably about six or seven years. What sort of age were you when you first went there? Well, I first went there when I was about 13, and then I went there to finish school, and then I went um, back, I guess I was probably 19 or 20. I remember having my 21st in Melbourne. Yeah. And then I think I was 26 when I when I left there. But I, there was a lot of, there's quite a strong music scene in Melbourne. There's all yeah. pubs everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Lots of bands. Well, when did music enter the scene for you? Like, we as a listener, even, as a listener, e even before a player, was it? Yeah, yeah. But actually, it had been a player more before I was a listener because I remember when I was young, really young, just finding things and playing them. Yeah. And then uh, getting into my dad's record collection, which was pretty sizable for, for, for those days. Yeah. Diverse? Um, or was it? Diverse as well, yeah. Like, he had, he basically had a lot of early roots and blues stuff these um real folk blues collection mm, mm. listen to a lot of that and these sort of old compilations of different people with that chicago blues sound and then he had a lot of this early um sort of r&b from the uk yeah lots of dylan lots of lou reed lots of bowie so I always somehow hear that record collection and whenever I go to play, I always find these strings coming, yeah, yeah, coming yeah. back You're from Yeah, 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 bits of it up yeah. in a way. And yeah. in a way, like, I've talked a lot with different artists and done recently, there's been a few things, sort of question sessions where I've realised it's often the father that is responsible for bringing music into the life of the children, you know, somehow. Mm. And not, not always, obviously, but... um. Ask a lot of musicians, you'd be surprised how many times. It's that's true, actually. People, introduction people, point. You see it in interviews, in yeah. print interviews. People talk about my father's record yeah. collection. Yeah. Like the, they were the, I, I, my 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 parents are still together, so um, I always refer to it as their collection oh, because yeah. it very much was. But actually, that's my nice. my parents. Um, both kind of introduced me to music and, mm. and different sorts of things. They're into a lot of stuff that they're both into but yeah. my mum's always been more into the jazz and blues mm -hmm. angle and my dad's like Beatles and mm -hmm. classic sort of classic 60s stuff yeah well and a lot of the yeah. records my dad had were early Beatles records that he bought for my mum so mm -hmm. I'm sure that's not just the yeah, yeah, male yeah. dominated no but you I guess well it, it comes back to that thing of the record collector Stereotypically, as the you know, and the Robert Crumb yeah, depiction yeah. of the record yeah, yeah. collector, isn't it? It's a bit like it yeah. ties into that, I suppose.
Yeah, mum might have more practical things to buy for the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some yeah. fetishism or, record stuff. Or not be concerned with, <laughs> yeah, not have yeah. the time to, yeah. And she can just that. turn on the radio, it's going to be there anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then you, you talk to anyone that runs a record store now and, you know, young women are buying records lots and in some cases are in their browsing more than, you know, any other sort of demographic. It's sort mm. of... Um, females in their twenties. Yeah, right. I'm really I've fascinated been, with records. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which oh, is, great. So that's a nice change from yeah, the yeah. from the from the stereotype. Um, so okay, so in Melbourne, you were starting to perform. Mel- yeah, Melbourne was starting to perform. So I was playing drums a lot with with different bands and and getting into playing bass guitar. Singing started relatively late for me, and weirdly enough, it, it was sort of country music coming into my life that made me realise the power of the voice and the message, the story, and, mm. and that is a way to, um, I guess, a memory-based thing of relaying stories, history, or uh, learning a lot of Hank Williams' songs and realising it's so easy to remember these songs because it's such a logical progression in the story, you know? Yeah, yeah. If you can remember that story. Real can... proper storytelling within a song, isn't it? Like yeah, it's a literal real... story. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really amazing, and so I think that was the first time it struck me what the power of the voice was. I mean, there's always been the the realization of what a voice can do to you physically, how yeah. it sounds, and what, what sort of a reaction and response it'll trigger. But the idea of it containing a really strong message was, I guess, that sort of came with that um, that age. That was late, you know. That was like 27 or 28. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get from there to Europe? And well, um, from there I... I and what do you do? Are you working manual labour jobs or retail jobs, hospital jobs? I did 12 years in kitchens, so yeah. I did a lot of cooking. I also had a big stint of time in Melbourne when I was doing caregiving work. So I worked yeah. for like several different agencies. And uh, go and get guys out of bed in the morning with muscular dystrophy and, you know, they're like big big lumps of, um, yeah, yeah. of bread dough or yeah, something yeah, yeah. amazing how you learn to you know they know how to how their weight works and stuff so they sort of tell you what to do and you, that was incredible and then cooking a lot for um, houses of guys who couldn't cook for themselves and sort of getting old guys who would come out the other end of pretty severe alcoholism they're yeah. in hospices getting them to eat and just um, it was because it was agency work. It was a it was a massive variety, and so you'd get your regular jobs coming back, but then all of a sudden you'd get a train out to Sunshine, out in the middle of the sort of the beginning of these deserts of Australia. It felt like, and end up in some weird house that had just been built by yourself with three guys, one who collected um, those crazy plastic ties for yeah uh, newspaper bundles, yeah, and and kind of strangled himself and one who would smash his head on the sink until he bled and you're just there by yourself and you're like oh how do you sort yeah, of deal right. with these situations you know so makes playing to a shitty crowd really easy <laughs> like some, in, well, it's, it's it's while you're thing. talking about that i'm yeah. thinking in some weird way yeah, yeah. you know all the things we do prepare us for yeah. what we end up doing and there's some compassion that you've learned and i think as well doing it with that was a that uh, caregiving work was a massive change from the hospitality work mm. that was based on numbers and speed, getting it out as fast as you can, 
and then the the caregiving work was the complete opposite. It was like, no, you really take your time Care and, and attention look and after do, this yeah. one person instead of yeah. trying to feed Meet their needs 100 and get or, it right. Yeah. yeah. And I just remember that, that sort of um, the shift in weight of that and how it felt. It was really, I really liked it. Yeah. And I wondered sometimes about me and the way I am and my motivational techniques that I have learned over the years or how I work with other people and wonder how much of it's rooted in that terrible model of the kitchen where you're so used to just kicking people mm. through the mm. obstacles instead of leading them through you know you just it's a lot of pushing and shouting and obviously bands don't have so much shouting because a lot of it's voluntary yeah. but these kind of <laughs> heavy mental techniques I don't mm. know just wonder about that mm-hmm. um, so you, you get to you get to Europe how? I got married and went to live in Europe in Bern, Switzerland. And that was um that was where I met Reverend Beatman and this whole sort of Voodoo Rhythm yeah. family. Yeah. And that for me really felt like a musical home. A musical home and a connection with a big family because there was Zeno Tornado and his country band, Reverend Beatman was doing his his bigger band stuff at that stage, he just kicked his reverend show into gear. Yeah. Dead Brothers were playing, there was, it just seemed like there was so many bands that were really just coming up. And uh, being a multi-instrumentalist, you could fit in here, you could fit in there. This is could, what, early 2000s, late 90s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, this was that, like 2001 or so. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and then definitely talking to a lot of these guys about recording and about sound and realising that my sympathies was away from this uh, kind of what was still hanging around as this heavy studio produced thing mm. and to being something much more live and raw and spontaneous and overdriven and a warmer sound and seeing this whole this whole uh, value in these you know early 50s and 60s recordings and how that sound covered yeah. so many genres it was the mm. way country music sounded soul music sounded R&B, like that yeah. R&B sounded Blues, like that yeah. it all had this fantastic live warm sound yeah. and then through the search for fidelity and higher recording goals people sort of got into these deadened drums and yeah. one guy just doing cymbal takes by himself in a yeah. room for two days <laughs> yeah, yeah. it just that whole that whole way of recording really sort of repelled me and I found yeah. this much liver more dynamic way was really that's definitely what started to get me interested in the, the lower fi side of it and I guess this is sort of when Jack White's starting to make a bit of a mark too in the mainstream you know like as someone yeah, who yeah. you know so the, that idea becomes becomes palpable for yeah everybody. that's right because yeah. he's gathering like a mainstream audience uh, yeah I think he really fringe to mainstream and yeah he pushed that I guess into a like you say into a mainstream awareness yeah 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 yeah. um so okay so so you you fall into what playing drums primarily drums I joined a band I played drums lap steel trombone a bit of acoustic guitar and sang I mean it was a band that was Dead Brothers everybody switched around yeah yeah the um, the accordion player played guitar and, and keyboards. The trumpet player played the tuba and all sorts of weird Arabic instruments. Now, are, you, the are you self-taught across all of these things, or is it pretty, pretty much? Pretty much. Pretty like, much. I had some. I had a couple of guitar lessons when I was younger, but that ended up the teacher wanted me to teach him the blues. 
which was yeah. kind of weird. And then um, I had some piano lessons. So that's your bass, yeah, yeah. from there. And that, I think I uh, kind of ruined the life as the piano teacher <laughs> just by not practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Being lazy, but um, yeah, I think those the basic theory of piano is something that's. I wish I, I wish I worked harder. I think a lot of musicians say that they wish yeah, they yeah. stuck at this or they wish they'd push things further. But yeah, it definitely set me up for some kind of a yeah. understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, what's happening with your own music? Is that bubbling? That's underneath. always bubbling yeah. away. I mean, yeah. for me, it's it's never a matter of having the songs together to put out. That's always another album. There's always enough songs for that. So I, I guess recently I've put out a lot of stuff and it's been quicker and quicker. So the last year's seen this, um, this Diamond Dozen, which was a real look at under the, under the bonnet of yeah. songwriting beginnings and roots for me. Then this um, Lucky Guy came out. Then the uh, Devil in the Parlour and always helping other people put out, you know, producing Tammy's stuff, yeah. Yeah. all the stuff me and Marlon did together. There's been a lot of stuff coming out. So I guess it seems like it's time to just cool the jets a bit and hold on to the stuff instead of just yeah. throwing it out all the time. But at the same time, part of me thinks, ah, why? You know, like I would kind of like to find a different way of um, releasing music, and I was even thinking of doing like an EP every couple of months and just yeah. releasing it on the, as a digital, digital. Yeah. way. Like and a diary of where you're at. Yeah, just songwriting, you know, because songs yeah. change so much anyway. You record, I sometimes record up to three or four demo versions in different studios, and then it seems like a shame that they just sort of disappear. Well, I mean, everyone's got a different writing pro approach, and obviously a different sort of, people have different ideas around how they want to record and release and stuff, but... I've been thinking about this a bit recently is that you know really for most people making music um, the outcome in terms of recording and distributing is um, what's the word challenging <laughs> to put it's it mildly word, yeah. you know like I was going to say fruitless but that's unfair mm. but it's, it's it's largely challenging so why not if you've got the material why not do things like that EP every couple of months or quarterly or whatever it is and and you know, you like for someone like you, you've got a fan base. Obviously, it could always be larger, and that's perhaps part of the goal. But this would be one way of 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 maybe increasing that. And even if it doesn't, you know, it's the stuff is all opt in. Like, a person does they have to? We don't have to own every single thing a person does. No, no. And we're actually living in an, in a time within music now where that idea of ownership around. The physical product, or even you know, a digital copy, isn't, yeah. isn't that important? It's changing Someone, a lot. Yeah, yeah, I posted a clip the other day, or a photo of a Bruce Springsteen record, and said it was my favorite. And someone wrote a really interesting comment underneath was, you know, and this is like to nerdy like record collecting types, and a comment underneath was, um, I consider myself a hardcore fan of Bruce, and this is the only album of his I own. And I thought that's great that like. A while, not not even that long ago, you couldn't kind of couldn't get away with that sentence. Like no, if you really wanted no. to show your stripes, you had to have everything. Yeah. You had to have the Antique B sides, the, yeah. the bootlegs, the different versions. But but now you just had have to be able to access mm. them. You know, like there's no reason why you can't have all that knowledge. I wonder if that's a mentality change as well. Yeah. I noticed when I 
started to tour and just basically got rid of everything I had. Yeah. That was a terrifying concept to a lot of people that, whoa, where's your stuff, you know? And did that just get easier and easier, I imagine? It gets easier and easier. And then yeah. someone said to um, a friend of mine, they said, oh, don't give anything to Delaney because you'll just go to the next town and give it to someone else, you know? Yeah. So a book or a record or whatever. And that idea of ownership, it definitely seems yeah. like it's changing, the yeah. idea of digital files or yeah. it's almost imaginary it's stored away yeah, in yeah. somewhere you yeah. know? so that's really um it's interesting and and seeing it translate into music fan jargon as well that yeah, yeah. You, you don't own all the back catalog yeah, yeah. you just listen a lot and yeah and that's what i say just to be able to access it mm. is enough and i, I was not going to go back to this guy and go you can't be a springsteen mm. fan i own more of his records than you do because it's mm. like oh, there you get that the collector thing the person who owns the records but doesn't actually take the time to listen yeah, to them yeah. anymore you know yeah, like yeah, exactly. so okay so where do you when do you go right I'm gonna I'm gonna be <clears throat> Delaney Davidson solo artist you know when, when do does, I yeah when do you go right it's time for me to uh, I've been accruing this material I've been developing oh. an aesthetic and a style for the next record, do you mean? No, no, I mean for the first record. Like, when do you go, when do you sort of go... Oh, okay. Uh, that was actually Dylan from Stink Magnetic. Yeah. Who came through Switzerland. I was staying with Reverend Beatman, and he he heard what I was doing, and he said, you got, how come you haven't got a record out, you know? And he, I gave him a whole lot of home recordings, and he sort of combed through those and found what he would want to put out on Stink Magnetic, his yeah. record label, yeah. as a first sort of album of mine and that was called Rough Diamond and that was that was such a boost for someone to take that over and and put that out you know it was great so we put out a small run of CDs and then that got rid of that pretty quick because I'd do this thing where I'd um, go from town to town playing and I'd get to the gig and as I was doing sound check I was burning CDs in my computer and <laughs> Printing the copy, the yeah. covers at the yeah. train station I got yeah. into. Then um, it was nice to have an actual release. Okay, this is it. So, and then I guess once that was out, it felt like, oh, okay, let's go for it. And so, Go Songs followed on pretty quick. And then uh, the two records on Voodoo Rhythm, the Self Decapitation, yeah. Bad Luck Man came out. And then it felt like there was a bit of a time in between those and putting Swim Down Low together. But I guess there was a lot of stuff that was when the Sad But True stuff was being recorded yeah. and there was a lot of other work coming out. So it felt like there was a long time in between solo records. And then uh, after Swim Down Low, then um, I think it was Diamond Dozen came out and then this set a quick run of these things. Yeah. So I kind of had thought later this year I'd be putting out my next solo album. And... I don't know, um, I guess I've just sort of held off on it because it feels like this Manos del Jungle thing's really yeah. churning through and we're um, we're looking at how we get our first album together. You know, it's more than half finished, so we're trying to figure out the rest of that. And just looking at a nice way to, to couch these songs because yeah. it feels like you can collect all the, and that's usually the way I record is it's a compilation of different times and yeah. different studios. Yeah, yeah. And I think Lucky Guy and Ghost Songs were the only albums that felt like they'd been really 
put together at one time. Yeah, as an album rather yeah, than as a singular vision. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. So I think I'm I'm wondering if part of me is waiting to do that with this next thing, but I also know that I really love some of the atmospheres and the recordings yeah. that I've already got. So yeah, yeah. I guess I'll just have to see where it goes at the time. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about um, Manos in a minute, but let's go back to. Um, Marlon, because to Marlon Williams, because I talked with uh, Tammy Nelson, and we talked a bit about this. And that, uh, you're in a the same boat as her uh, with this, is that um, when he goes from opening for Bruce Springsteen to next year to being in a sense Bruce Springsteen, you guys will still be allowed backstage when the rest of us won't. You've got a you're in the sort of secret world of. Marlon Williams, what's it been like watching, understanding his trajectory and obviously in your case playing quite a, a not an insignificant part in that? Yeah, it's a curious question I guess, like I, I know with musicians we often have this thing we say that if you want to see another musician you have to book a gig together. Yeah. <laughs> because you just won't. Yeah, yeah, otherwise you know, it won't happen. No one's yeah. in the same place and everybody's got to work. And, and everyone has to have an off night which yeah. is the other person's gig. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess from, from going to being guys just pretty much living in each other's lives and touring yeah. and working together so closely. It seems like it's been a long time between catch-ups. But how did that initial connection, like, who sought that out and how did you guys find each other? It was an accident. And that was that happened when we were both... Adam McGrath was, he used to do these Wednesdays at the yeah. Wonder Bar and yeah. he, he asked me, look, I'm out of town next week, do you want to do it? And he also told Marlon that, so we both sort of turned up. Right, really to do the... grinning at each other from <laughs> one side of the car park to the other and just figured out we knew a lot of similar songs and gave it a crack and it was good it was really nice to um i mean for me i remember meeting someone and thinking meeting marlon and thinking fuck it's someone who's as gung-ho and dedicated as, as me as you were that yeah was yeah so yeah refreshing to find someone who wasn't yes. tinkling around here or they, this was a life decision for this guy. Didn't have a clue. He had a clue. He had more than just a clue. Yeah, like he, yeah. yeah. And and realizing that backlog of songs, and then also being surprised at what he knew, that was really cool too. Yeah. So being able to to bring stuff to the table that the other didn't have, not just reconfirming the same things you already knew. Yeah. And that was really nice. Mm. So I guess watching his trajectory is amazing because it seems like a textbook, this is how you do it. Yeah, 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 know, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's hard not to, you know, you think, you know, would they teach this? Would they go, this is, mm. this is actually the way to do it? But then, mm. of course, it requires that thing that he has that, you know, maybe not many people at all <laughs> outside of him have. But, um, so, you're... You're um, still going to do solo stuff, you think? I think that's always going to be, yeah. be the difference. like the, the bedrock of what yeah. I do. And and for me, I just always feel like that's um, it's a creative output process, but it's also a massive input process. Like, I feel like I <clears throat> I need to watch movies a lot, you know, yeah. or, or visual information to, to feed that thing. Mm. And there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of stuff I want to do that... I still feel like I'm waiting to do, which is like a the next stage of my so-called tertiary studies, which mm -hmm. would be 
basically based in the States and that would be seeing a lot of people play like a lot of these I went play, playing Muddy Roots recently and being able to see Del McCurry band from yeah. 10 metres away outside in the night in the middle of the countryside in Tennessee on a wooden stage and that was just for me that was like going back in time you know it yeah, really yeah. really had a, such wow. a huge effect on me of seeing the guys <clears throat> playing these songs yeah. who who have kept this thing alive for so yeah, long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was just magic, you know? And then a lot of these smaller, uh, seeing Slim Cessna's Auto Club really up close, um, seeing people like J.D. Wilkes and what they're doing, and just this whole this whole thing of Americana that's still, <clears throat> it's not it's not the highly compressed bluegrass mm. guitars mm. with the slick Weizenborn solos. It's just really rootsy culture yeah. and there's so much of it alive and it feels like I, I just really want to go and see well, when did you when did you first get really bit by that because obviously the the America is in your sound and been in your like not just Americana but America yeah. has been in your listening for a long time I would imagine I guess that early blues thing it still yeah. goes back to that record collection yeah. and those those chess recordings yeah you know that's the sound and that's still what I'm trying to do is that that chess record sound yeah you know the early the Howling Wolf stuff and the Muddy Waters all the stuff those guys recorded well you can hear the wood in the room yeah yeah around it yeah and somehow that's that's still the sound I'm trying to make. I mean, obviously, there's different influences I'll bring in there, and this this uh, more electronic, looped, synthetic, trancey thing. That the trance thing goes to the blues, but all the 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 more electronic side of that somehow seems to be rooted in bands like Suicide or yeah, right. in Kraftwerk or some of the stuff that yeah. somehow comes to play in, in this thing as well yeah yeah and so um i mean that's the interesting thing about you having this sort of solo catalogue to go back to and to refer to but you've uh, strikes me that you've always been a a deeply collaborative person yeah. that that's a a big part of what you do from the early band stuff through to if not being a physical playing presence on an album you know, mm. in a producing role, which, you know, usually when you're doing that, you're on the record yeah. as well in yeah. some playing sense. But, you know, to, to the to the duets with Marlon and now to the band that you've got going now. Yeah, I think that's... <clears throat> I was wondering about that because I had, I've had a lot of time to think about it and I've had a lot of times I've done it where it's really... It's sparked a, some kind of a weird uh, question in me about yeah. why or how or what does that bring because a lot of people don't do that you know they just go oh, yeah whatever yeah. but for me it's two things one is it feels like I can see the side of people that I don't know if anyone else can see and I'm sure everybody has their own you know like everybody has their own idea of what is best for something yeah and the more potential something has the more people will have that idea of oh if only you did this yeah. if only you did that sometimes it's to a lot of people it's a pain in the ass but if to have people coming up saying oh you know you could do a bigger <laughs> one of that and then yeah, you could yeah. sell it or oh you know what you need to do but um well Tammy used words very similar to what you just used she said you were very good at 
recognizing the parts that were missing, you know, mm. in someone else, yeah. the parts that, you know, not just that you could bring them, that you could facilitate that, but that they were required. Yeah, as well. that means you're not in the picture. That's right. Yourself, which yeah. is really important in production. And the best time, the most. Uh, I remember producing Tammy's Dynamite album and sitting out with Ben Edwards in the studio and hearing the guys playing the songs and realizing that song's totally there, that song's totally there, and they didn't know it yet. Yeah. They didn't think the song was written or finished. But we would we'd record a bit of what they were doing and just go and say, guys, it's great, do you want to do the next one? And they were really frustrated. So even though they were playing the song, they didn't realize it was done. But yeah. from, from not being part of it and being separated, you could see something no one else could see, you know? It's interesting, Lister, I've just been listening to an interview with Joe Henry, who's the producer I, you know, mm. like a lot, because it's, it's always worth hearing an album that he's been involved with, but um, he sort of put across that idea that, look, there really are no firm rules for this, like, mm. you, you know, producers have a style, but you have to be open to the idea that something's going to happen. Yeah that's going to make it work on a level you weren't expecting and, yeah. and he recorded an Over the Rhine album and he said, you know, I think there's 11 tracks and 8 of them are first takes mm. from within, and the whole thing was recorded in 4 days and 8 of the tracks are first takes and he's like, I'm not really a first take guy like, yeah. you know, people think I yeah. went in with that ambition, I didn't but we just listened back to them and went... Yeah. you're not getting better than this this is no, no. amazing and yeah. we've captured some kind of magic and he goes and and most of the people involved in that session like the other musicians in that they did it on a first take and they'd only just met and he's yeah. like but that doesn't mean you then go right that's my style from now on and I'm going to take that to the next record you know you take the the memory of that happening to the next record yeah. and something but you don't go and try and replicate that each, no, each one that is experience. its own that experience that's yeah. right that stays with you but each record is its own thing and, and develops its own you know I think that like in a classic example of that would have been some of the recordings of the Dead Brothers where we did get this first take thing and knowing warts and all that's got the feeling we want that's got everything and then doing um, Come Over and Take Me Out <coughs> on Tammy's album yeah and seeing <clears throat> those guys, none of them were happy with that take. Right, right. Tammy didn't like the singing, Joe didn't like the drumming, yeah. no one was happy. But it was, and I was, as soon as I heard it, I was convinced that's the one. They did, oh no, no, we'll do some more. They did two more, and of course it was the first one, you know, because it just yeah. had that raw energy, and it was kind of falling over. It was going too fast. Yeah. It was just, it had everything you'd want in that sentiment, you yeah. know, so it was, yeah. that was a, and I remember realising from that Dead Brothers session going, ah, oh, this is that same thing. This has the energy, and it might not be the perfect version, but it's, got what we want you know mm -mm. so i feel like uh and and maybe i'm discounting some some really great 
work earlier, but I feel like um, Tammy's Dynamite was where I really went, wow, about her, but also about your, you as a pro- producing voice. As it mm. got, you know, I feel like there's some real magic in that album. And yeah, it made me so. go back and listen to, you know, I, I had written off a lot of what she'd done previously based on not enjoying the first album. And now I've gone back and listened to that stuff and you can see those steps, you know, mm. you can see where she was heading. But that album to me is where she fully arrives. Yeah, I think... I think so. And in some sense, I think you do yeah. too, as a producer, though. Like, yeah, I think a lot of the work with Marlon was leading towards that. Yes. But I was still heavily involved in the music, so I um, didn't have that that distance we talked about before that gives mm. you that really uh, massive overview. Of oh, it, looking of at the everything. picture, yeah, the whole and thing. Definitely for Dynamite, it was a case of going, "This song isn't here. We need one of these," and we wrote five or six songs. Yeah. Some of them we wrote. In 20 or 30 like running to you was written walking through a room having a riff come in my head going out saying this, how, what do you think of this great let's write it 30 minutes later it was written two hours later it was recorded was just so fresh and so so much um, happening at the time that was that was great to be able to just see those gaps and go we need this we need that we need one of these mm. and that's where songwriting and I think we believe this a lot more instantly but songwriting is like that thing Joe Henry said about producing where there is no firm and fast rule you can take the experience mm. you know you build up skills and yeah. you know structures yeah. but you can, you know, you can labour over a song for years and get it right, or you can write a song in 30 minutes and get it right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it doesn't mean that the years were a waste on that other one, that's just what was required. No, it's all to, it's to, all the, a non-linear way of looking at it, I yeah. think. It's a big, weird, swirling pool, and you can dip into it and come out of it, and even mm. if you do a song, you think you've written it, you've just basically pegged a, some weird course between two two points so you've even just described some random thing but there's so many ways to play a song who, who says it's written you know yeah. even when you've you, okay you've got the chords and the words but then you can take away the chords and still have it or it's such a strange I guess alchemical thing I think songwriting yeah. because it's always about pulling together things that end up transforming into something completely different from their parts you know yeah, yeah. and especially when you get different songwriters together that's when that really that shines that stuff you know that finding how people can combine into making pictures or worlds they never knew themselves but yeah. they bring that out of each other somehow mm, mm. so you mentioned talking about the influence of or well, the time required to watch films and things like that which I love because I, I, it's a question I often will ask you know, when I'm doing the more structured sort of question and answer interviews with musicians on the phone, I'll, I always want to bring out, like, 
what are the influences in, in your music and songwriting outside of just naming me a bunch mm-hmm. of songwriters? You know, pe- people always end up naming, and with influences, people think they should name things they kind of sound like. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, yeah. oh, well, you know, Bob, or, or, or like these, you know, towering figures like Dylan and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. It's like, why can't you say Ricky Lee Jones? You know, like, why is she not good enough? And why? Yeah. And do you have to be a woman to say her? You know, like, all women yeah, songwriters say Joni Mitchell. Why can't mm. they say Tom Waits? And when yeah. they do, that's great. You know, mm. suddenly my interest is peaked. So I'll always say to people, like, you know, with their books or movies or, you know, mm. things outside of, you know, cultural experiences that contribute to your music. Even your peers, you know? Yeah. Like, Conversations. Some of the peers, musical peers, Reverend Beatman, possessed by Paul James. These are people who have had so much influence on me. Yeah. And working with Marlon, a massive influence. Working with Tammy, you know, people like that. It's not always the huge towering figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the people that have done 40 records. Yeah, you know? and sometimes the smaller things can have an influence on you. Like, <clears throat> like uh, I don't know, some drive you did in the yeah, night yeah, one time yeah. that had a huge influence on you or... A detour you took on a. I took a detour the other day driving, and I got into some. It was like a weird dam and a river, and I was like, "Ah, oh, this is a dead end. I don't even know where the hell I am." Turn around and go back, and yeah. then some thought popped into my head, you know. And somehow I thought, if I hadn't ended up taking this detour, I wouldn't have sort of thought this thought. Or yeah, it's influencing that stuff. I mean, it's interesting the the influence of that stuff and the the accidental nature. Looks like an accident, but if you just if you just give yourself space to do some so-called random pointless stuff, yeah, yeah, then that's when that stuff starts to come out. But there's a visual element to your music that's important too, from you know from stage attire through to um, the the artwork mm. and the videos, and mm. there's a there's an aesthetic that you're building. But I wonder, is it you know? by design or convenience or both like is there there's a lo-fi aspect to some of the um the visuals visuals like the videos and stuff which i imagine in part there's a necessity to hey how do we get this music out there and how do we market it and how do we do it on a budget but also like there's a decision before that i feel like there's an aesthetic decision before that yeah i guess the story that stuff brings you know like if something's too slick and it looks too polished it can be great but it can also mean ah it looks like a studio yeah manufactured like i guess they used a red camera you know (laughs) yeah yeah. there's all that stuff and that's um i call that uh I, i guess i look at that and describe it as it's too slick for you to find any attachment to and if something's a bit gritty you, it hooks you and that's when you get um that's the things you can that can help you attach to something any and that's just a physical thing if you're doing paint and you need to do a bit of sanding to so the paint will stick and yeah i always sort of look at it like that that the medium brings so much of its own story anyway yeah i remember steve abel telling me once yeah you can tape's great working with tape you can just record an empty room and it sounds fantastic yeah yeah you yeah know? and some somehow that's stuck with me that idea that uh it's as it's as much the medium you choose obviously another medium thing that's curious is how this idea of is um digital versus analog yeah and for me it's not the medium it's 
what the medium makes you do, you know, and the yeah. choices you will make and the, the approach you bring because you are confronted with the limitations. That's really, that's the thing. It's not if it sounds better or not, it's what yeah. it makes you do. Yeah, yeah. So with that medium-based thing of it looking a bit lo-fi, that's, that's definitely something, it's what that medium, it's what that lo-fi brings out of you, how you how you struggle to overcome it and how you how you push the boundaries and how you can hear the the distortion of the mic or you can hear things pushing and straining and yeah. they're not comfortable. And so um, what's your background in terms of making record covers and the you know, well, you, there's an art background there obviously that's I did a lot of visual art. I did a lot of painting. Mm. I used to do printmaking. And then a really good friend of mine in Bern, Switzerland, Robert Butler, taught me uh, the basics of Photoshop and it kind of took off from there. Then yeah. suddenly I could get my head around fonts and design and a design that you can shift and move and work with as opposed to something that's heavily committed with ink on paper or, mm, mm. or oil painting. And so that really opened up worlds for me of being able to... Um, just kick uh, lots of different designs into being and and trying out. I mean, for me, it's mainly about layout. I think that's what it comes down to, the the arrangement of the stuff. Mm, mm. Um, so let's talk about um, Manos del Chango and how that came about and I guess a little bit about what that is. I mean, I've, I've seen you guys play once. Mm. And are you still, like, is the pattern for that show similar where you sort of, it starts off with you playing some solo stuff and then it evolves into this band, duo band yeah, thing? Or, usually... are you, or are you sometimes fucking with that and opening as the band? Or Well, we've kind of did that to... Um... Originally, because we didn't have as many songs as we wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what I wondered. I thought you yeah. must be building more and more of a set. So. Yeah, yeah, so that was that was how we started it off. And as well, because people who came to the show would be expecting to see me, and so that was, you know, a way to yeah, yeah. deliver part of that promise and um, ease them into the other thing, I guess, as yeah. well. So it started off with something more familiar and then segued into Manos del Chango. Yeah. But uh, recently we've, I mean, yeah, Nicole describes it as being some, as a project where we, we were free to try out a lot of stuff we wouldn't normally try out, and that involves instruments, drum machine if we can find one, or mm. the bass synth idea that we've been working with. And when I saw you play, you played with a drummer, I think it was Joe, wasn't we it? We had Joe McCallum, yeah. yeah. So when we play in Wellington, we'll do that without Joe uh, using the rhythms I build on the loop machine yeah. or the Casio tone stuff that Nicole produces. Yeah. So, I mean, we've just done two months in Europe, sort of working on that show, and we've got shows here in New Zealand at these where we're, we're uh, revealing, I guess you'd call it, this much more visual side of what right. we do where we bring film into the into, into the, the show. And yeah. we're, doing, we're doing that twice, once in the Harcourts yep. Fox Bay Arts Festival and once in Nelson at their arts festival. And so we've got these films we've made that are based Travelogue. On, some of it's Travelogue, of. and some of it's really uh, not so much just 
random things like it's yeah. really setting up a little stage yeah and filming impressionistic yeah based yeah. a lot on this early german expressionist yeah. look and weird old uh this this idea as well of the la noir mm-hmm. idea that goes from those early dead on arrival and those sort of films up to david lynch what he's doing these days yeah yeah and then also uh sort of filming some of these um mexican creepy sort of stories folk stories about yeah, yeah. a woman who falls asleep and wakes up sick and keeps getting sicker and sicker and sicker and ends up dying and then when she dies they find there's a huge parasite living in her pillow so there's really sort of <laughs> horrible ideas like yeah. that and trying to find a way to use that that lo-fi old black and white noir look mm. to um, film these a lot of it is travelogue and I mean it's so nice to be able to try and capture some of these places you go through yes. when you tour because there's so much incredible because again a standard and you you know you would have probably been asked this but a standard interview a question is you know do you get much time in these places to have a look mm. around and, rah, rah, and in a way you're you're capturing that for yourself for later yeah. as well as yeah you know presenting yeah. it to another audience and recontextualizing it but, a lot but, of it was that yeah, yeah. Being gobsmacked at yeah. a tram and going, I've got to get something. Yeah. I've got to yeah. get something because we're not going to walk past this again. We're not going to no. have time. On we? the other hand, I know now. The first couple of times I went travelling, I was, you know, I almost couldn't sleep. I'd be out trying to get everything I possibly could. But now, I think part of me is relaxed and knows. Yeah. Oh, you probably come back next year on another tour. So in yeah, a way but that's of, because you know you're going to yeah. travel more. Yeah. You know, like you're not a first, lazy like yeah, that. yeah. But you're a you're a semi-professional traveller now, Somehow, if not a yeah. professional traveller. Yeah. Well, I do do it for a living. So yeah, that's right. I'm professional. Yeah, exactly. But so so, what is Manus del Chango? How did it come about? Was it a, another chance meeting like the Marlin situation with the duets? Who is Nicole? What's how's what made you guys think it was worth repeating more than once and turning into a thing? You know, like why have you? Uh, and I'm not saying this skeptically. I just want to know the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm interested. Totally. Like I, I just, I just wonder what made you maybe put what you were doing on hold to pursue this more. What did you? When did you go? We can do something with this. Well, we started. We met in Switzerland. She was touring with Reverend Beatman, and um, I was doing my solo tour. And we we met, and we got on really well, and we started sort of talking a lot um, about different ideas. And then we put together a show in Switzerland where we played with Beatman, and um, we played up in his. He's got like a hardware store, which is a cellar down yeah. under medieval burn and there's rafters so he built some crazy stage in the rafters which he fell out of the next day <laughs> trying to move the gear he said i fell out of the rafters onto the records onto the cds onto the jackets onto the floor so like you can just imagine him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i think he had to go to hospital to check out his ribs but that was where we we played together this first time and i just remember hearing what was happening between the songs she was singing, the early guitar lessons I'd had, the Spanish sort of flavour that is something that I always was interested in from this Jelly Roll Morton talking about the Spanish tinge that creeps into Mm. blues and jazz and um, then hearing that echoing in her singing and also a lot of the the sort of R&B organ influence that she has that 
fitted so well with the blues stuff yeah. I was doing and we, um, we talked a lot about that and then how we could uh, how that could work then uh, we became a couple and she ended up coming on the tour I booked a tour in Europe to release Lucky Guy and she came and started to play the bass synth as um, to hold down the bass end of it so it was me, her and Joe doing my songs yeah. and then out of that we started trying to figure out oh wow this is such a different feeling instead of having a bass player mm. so we started to look at um, we did we did a show in Littleton really early on and that had Ben Woolley, Joe McCallum, Nicole and me and we, we dug out a whole lot of old Cumbia classics to play and did a Gorillaz cover mm. and started working on other songs and then as we did this tour in Europe with Joe, we started she started fitting into some of the other songs I do, like the Johnny Dowd song. Mm. And um, we just saw this reaction from people. A lot of people came up who spoke Spanish as their mother tongue and for them to hear music like we play in, yes. in Spanish was really we just couldn't believe how the response that people had to it was really mm. strong and and then a lot of people who know Nicole and what she's previously done were just talking about this weird fit of the, the darkness of both of us, yes. how it fits together. And then people who know my history and what I've done were coming and saying the same things to me about yeah, yeah. this, that alchemy thing again of, God, this is the the end result is bigger than the sum of the parts that we put together so it's interesting because yeah it's, that's exactly it it's not really light yeah. and shade it's like shade and shade yeah, you yeah. don't like it yeah. it's, it's very so true black, that... black on black was always yeah. a, a great printing technique yes yes I love when you get a t-shirt that's a black print on a black t-shirt yeah that's magic you know and that's to do with s shifting light to yeah. catch what's in there yeah and... yeah but it's funny people always you know it's, it's something of a cliche but people jump to that whole sort of um, light and shade heaven and hell thing when it's mm. a male and a female voice. Mm. But I didn't get that watching you guys. I mean, you know, No, like, I think it's open to who wants to do what role. That's right. And that's, that's right. really a which freedom, is, yeah. Which is cool. Male and it was the opposite. It was like, yeah. oh, the young hopeful, oh, the old sad guy. You know, <laughs> like, fucking hell, really? Is that it? So, we so you, to, you were sad and he was true. <laughs> somehow, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe the other way around. <laughs> I think Marlon has got a frequency inside him of absolute sorrow, mm. and I think that really hits people mm. in the heart, mm. and that's often mm. what what stops well, his, their tracks with him. It's his yeah. version of the high lonesome sound that yeah. people yeah. attach to that music, isn't it? Yeah. It's, and it's yeah. Maybe it's the low lonesome sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that working with Nicole is really amazing to to feel how those parts are. Yeah, it's up for grabs, and and watching her versatility shift around and her ability, you know. Yes, that's amazing to see. And so it means she can pick up the guitar and you can go to the that's, keyboards. Which, well, that's in the. That's, that's what I mean. I imagine for, that yeah. hasn't happened yet. No, but could. that's exactly that, right. So it's giving yeah. you that freedom too, or yeah. or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I think it's just starting to sort of. This is it finding its feet still, yeah, and, yeah. and definitely the introduction of the visual element is something we're both really interested in. Finding out ways to um, to really catch onto that. So I missed you guys playing at Costella, but that's where I met you. We mm -hmm. we, we got talking briefly at that, and I had um, young kids with me, so we left mm -hmm. before that. But uh, 
a few people said that your set at Costello was one of the highlights, and mm. and I'd seen you on the sh- I'd seen your sort of warm up show mm. before that in Wellington at the start of this year. Um, so the show that that show obviously went well, and then from there you've gone sort of shortly after that is when you took it overseas and you've yeah. Well, that was that was a that good was, yeah. end of a stint as well. I think where we were playing quite a few shows, and we I think I just bought the Jazzmaster guitar, so that really kicked things into a yeah. different element for me because the something about that guitar you know the telly is so telecaster is so fixed and so unforgiving yes and you really have to i mean i just make a mess of it a lot of the time but the jazz master has this liquid quality and that yeah, really yeah. that really helps it blend more with the keyboard i think that was i mean yeah costello was a it was such a nice uh show and such a nice it was a cool, cool, cool environment, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, it was really yeah, cool. It was, I really enjoyed it, yeah. And people just felt great. They felt really open, excited to be in a new place, happy to have a new festival yeah. taking off. And it was good to hear it's happening again, mm. and I think, there's, I think they've got a three-year really? commitment to oh, it. Awesome. I think they've got a three-year commitment and then mm. see what happens, but mm. it's definitely, I was talking to Jerry the other day, yeah. and it's definitely sort of set up, set in place for next yeah. year anyway. Oh, not that good. much, and he's... he's um, got a couple of different stage elements and mm. and obviously we'll be looking to bring a few more and different people into it but it's, mm. yeah, it's going to happen again it's a so great festival yeah it was really cool mm. um, and so yeah so you're, now you've got but that was when you were like probably had half a set or three quarters of a set as you're saying and then your solo stuff so now you're building towards a full album yeah, we've written a bit of songs. We've still got these things that we're trying to find. And for me, as I was saying before, this idea of me solo writing just being a constant thing. Yeah. I it just turn. It, it's easy to do that. So it's never. For, it's for me the question with Manas Del Chango is, is waiting to hear what comes into the space. So it's not just another Delaney song, you know. So it's, yeah. Oh yeah, that's something we made together. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's that's the flavour that has both of us in it instead of just me oh we're doing one of my things you know yeah yeah so it's it's a really different process for me because I'm an impatient guy I've got that kitchen thing that I'll just get on and do yeah, it yeah yeah and um I have to kind of ignore all that training and find a, a different way to work in this band it strikes me that the band is open the, the project is open too to maybe becoming like a giant big band it's really you know, I could have, I could imagine a lot about finding a add, percussion section. Yes. Like going to LA and finding some Having some horns. Guys, exactly. Yeah. Horn section I could imagine I could imagine seeing you guys in a year mm. and there's like nine of you on stage or sixteen, yeah. you know, yeah. or five to that's, start with. That's you know, the like, great thing is that having yeah. that really strong uh, duo relationship yes. thing there that anything can attach onto and yeah. build and and then we could just strip it down to two again. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a... Um, we'll do the um, Talking Heads concert film thing of layering it, you know, where it starts oh, with yeah, you yeah. two and then yeah, the yeah. drummer's added and, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the, a set could build like that yeah, that's, where you that's could add, add people. Idea. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I think it's open as well and the idea yeah. of us being able to play with the, with a lot of different people. We see people often and we think, wow, it'd be great to work with yeah. those guys, you know, so... We're, we're very open and the travelling nature of what we do yeah. would be a huge part of that as well yeah. Te- teaming up with people in Brazil or finding people in LA to work with or yeah. finding people in Europe as well and how do you divide your time with New Zealand is it a very is it a sort of clinical kind of 
three months here or six months here and six months. I never thought of it as being that conscious but no. weirdly enough the it's Facebook reminders <laughs> I get I'm like oh I'm in the same place as I was last year you yeah know, like, yeah at the same time yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. really weird how that happens where I, it, I thought it was totally random but it's, it's finding its things. own rhythm. <laughs> Maybe your life is living you instead yeah, of yeah. you are living your life. It yeah. could be a bit of that. But how important is it to you to reconnect with New Zealand? Is it, you know, you, you're a traveller and you've got an audience internationally and you're continuing to seek that out and that's obviously influencing the work as well as being very appealing. Yeah. It, it, do you feel a... What makes you come back here? Do you feel a bond to New Zealand? That well, it's obviously the history, the family connection, and the friends. I I find this thing happens where I come back to New Zealand and I'm like, oh god, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. And then after three, four months, five months, I don't want to leave, and yeah, I'm like, yeah. I don't, wow, I don't <laughs> want to go over there. What the hell? This is great, and mm. I'm really enjoying it. And then I get over to Europe, and I'm like, oh, what the hell am I doing here? I should be back home, you know. Yeah. So it's a matter of just reconnecting and. Um, I mean, there's so much great stuff here. There's I was gonna, well, I was going to say even the things that you've you've touched and had a ha you know had a hand in. I mean, mm. Dynamite is as good a record as anyone's going to release anywhere in the world mm. within that sound. Joe is one of the best drummers I've heard doing what he does. He's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. amazing Obviously, guy. Marlon is playing overseas. And, yeah. You know, being on TV shows and yeah, yeah. all this sort of thing. So this is all stuff that's happened in and from New Zealand. So mm. why would you turn and your back from on that cradle? That, that's what I mean. And that's well. just one yeah. tiny little thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, why would you turn your back on that? I think as well, we're just starting to get out, or I'm just starting to get my head around <clears throat> New Zealand and what is, what is, what is here. And I think Nicole's a huge part of that, meeting people with her and, and her outside perspective on what people are doing here and I'm like oh wow I never really thought about that or yeah I think as well from being a sour old curmudgeon of a guy and suddenly being part of a couple yes I think I'm a lot more approachable for people to want to hang around with or I mm. noticed this from don't just take my word from it I, I can <laughs> prove it you know I think I think that's more um I think it's, it opens things up yeah and definitely the project of Manas del Chango has a has a much more open potential thing than just me solo. Yeah, yeah. The solo thing, I often get guys coming up and they say, I, I'd love to jam out with you. And you're like, and the point of it is it's one guy by himself on stage. There's no jamming out yeah, yeah. with some guy, you know. But the, the, the thing with Nicole is it's much more... <clears throat> It's much more conducive to collaboration, and, yeah, yeah. and I think the ideas of the potential of what's possible with these two, two sort of characters singing is yes. also something that is just wide open and interesting. So, what else have you got lined up? You got in New Zealand. What are you here? For? Are you here for? We got the seven date tour. Yep. Auck two two nights in Auckland at the wine cellar, the seventh and eighth. Yep. Lee on the ninth. Our 14th in Napier, where we debut that film yep. uh, show. Then we have Auckland, uh, sorry, Wellington on the 21st. Yep. And then that'll be with Johnny Marks doing a solo duo thing, an all seeing hand, yep. and some mysterious tape incarnation from mm -hmm. Stink Magnetic. Mm. Then we go over to Nelson and we do the arts festival there where we do the movie show again, and then we go to Christchurch and play on the 29th of October. Then we go to Melbourne the next day. I'll play with Bob Log and we'll do some stuff with Manas Del Chango. Sort of debut the project over there. 
then there's the last waltz show yeah do you want to talk about that a bit yeah what's your feeling on that i'm just totally curious i guess like um so you were drafted in for that like you were approached they asked me to come and be part of that and initially i didn't think i was gonna have time Mm. but when i weighed everything up i mean the the opportunity to work with garth hudson's yeah that's unbelievable that's part of the journey for you right like you know not something you don't imagine but no like initially i said no and then the, the feeling inside when i sort of thought about missing out on that option somebody i know in la he makes hats he posted a picture of a book i gave him of uh, this wheels on fire the band mm, mm. biography by levon helm next to a copy of bad luck man and said yeah oh just found this book met this guy blah 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 and i saw this photo and i just thought ah oh, come on you know yeah, yeah. and so well, I was going to say, how important was either of those first two records or the last Waltz film for you? Was it uh, was that a big thing in your life? Or I think the big influence of the band was probably the Basement Tapes mm-hmm. was the strongest right. one. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just that idea of people living and working together on yeah. this music. The yeah. last Waltz, for me, I got really mixed feelings about that, uh-huh. the sort of story behind it. Yes, the idea of it being the end of something yeah you know, obviously it's it's a milestone in uh, our history of rock and roll that we have but i think that basement tapes just the freedom in it yes. the off the cuff recordings the, yeah the great sort of warm recordings that were done and and the tantalizing aspect of it too is that we've not heard all of, all of it you know exactly, like yeah. the bigger version exists and some people have yeah, heard that but yeah. that's not even all of it you know yeah. the idea that it's just mm. it's it's a it's a really interesting awesome little window into something yeah, yeah. and the window it is into a body of work from a bunch of guys who just dedicated themselves even on the last waltz um yeah rick danko says we just found we got so much more done when we stayed at home and people didn't come to visit that's right and yeah. i just love that idea yeah. that some guys hunkered down in the middle of nowhere working hardcore on their music and that's what they live in you know i remember going to australia uh, oh, a few years ago and finding the last waltz was one of the plane movies and i hadn't mm. watched it for a while I and mean, mm. I, I grew up with it you know um kind of on the tip of it being one of the great rock and roll concert films which i think yeah. it absolutely is yeah and i was always hopped on the Talking Heads film which mm. also you know gets referenced as one of the great ones and so in fact I think I remember saying to someone that the Talking Heads film was the best and they were like you know you've, you know, when I was a teenager mm. and they're like you've got to see The Last Waltz so I hadn't seen it for a few years and I put it on on the plane and watched it and it was so good that we were just in Sydney for a long weekend that mm. on the flight back I put it back on oh, you wow. know I put it back on and watched it <laughs> yeah, yeah. again and went yeah. like I can just totally you know because there are some pretty special moments in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, so it's a good band that's assembled for this it's project. It's incredible. It's the bands. It's a four-part yeah. horn section. Yeah. Then there's uh, Kevin Borich from the Lardy Dars. Yeah. Tammy Nielsen, Barry Saunders, Adam McGrath, Sister Maud Hudson, who's Garth Hudson's yeah. wife. Yeah. And me, Garth. And Garth. Yeah. Me. John Simon, who's the That's producer right, the, the, from the original Yeah, yeah, yeah the arranger and producer, yeah. And Mark Dennison, who's the musical director. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty... Um, and you're going around the... Cut, well, we're going around we're the centres. Three, yeah, three yeah, shows yeah. in Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty epic undertaking. It is. Mm. And um, 
And did you get some sort of purchase on what you, you're going to do as a singer? And you know, yeah, or you, again, were you sort of handed? Yeah. No, I said those the songs I definitely wanted to do. Mm. This wheel's on fire. I yeah. really wanted to do that song. And did every other singer have? <laughs> I'm sure they did. some of the same yeah. ones listed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, yeah, Barry talks about yeah. this album saving his life. Yeah. Adam McGrath's been, you know, he's a massive yeah. fan of the yeah. band. What's amazing about this is the idea in it of the rev- the sort of the revolutioning, the revolving. Sorry. Yes way that Roots music comes and goes and fluctuates in and out and mm-hmm. it seems like now it's at a point where it's coming really strongly back yeah. or is established as having made its comeback and the same thing was happening with the band they, you know they're touring yeah. this whole Georgia Chitlin circuit and, and the connection they had with that old stuff and how they were kind of reviving it when they were doing yeah. it so I think that's interesting time wise how, how that works for sure um, and so then what, like, that's that take you through to the end of the year? That'll take us through to um, to end of end of November. Yeah. And then there's a couple of little things I'm looking at doing. I'm not sure if they'll happen, but yeah. um, that'll sort of, I think December will be time to just go, okay. Have a holiday, have a break. Go for a walk. Yeah, yeah. Think about stuff, watch some yeah. movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and so, and the pipeline for next year is back overseas. As a more. T- yeah, I want to do it. I want to do some stuff in the states. I want to do more stuff with Manastel Changa and yeah. do this whole muddy roots thing. Um, I've been involved with. It's been great. Yeah. Um, touring Europe next year as well. So kind of building stronger. So there's you. I mean, as I see it, there's you as the, I mean, they're all one musical voice and one musical force really but there's you as the solo act and there's the band thing happening but there's also you as the producer mm. and I wonder like is that an itch that you feel the need that's to scratch totally. I mean every time I see just... something that comes out that feeling often when I see an artist I'm back to that thing of I think I can see yes. you and I don't know anyone else can see this and I'll, I want to help shine the light on this side of you and it's often a side that I hear that's not what the artist is pushing you know I would imagine a way that could be almost more addictive than performing like well I've done a lot of performing you know that's I've done a, 15 just, odd years just the idea that it's new world. too yeah but uh, it's funny know. on the last waltz where you hear um, you hear Robbie Robertson saying I mean 60 years on the road yeah I, I couldn't even think I could talk about it and you're yeah. like oh well I think I think it's not impossible yeah, maybe yeah. with you know I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I heard him say that, I thought, yeah, that's thirty. It's been thirteen years for me, and I don't, I don't feel like it's killing me. Yeah. I don't yeah. feel like I'm. That being said, it's you know I've done a lot of that, and I still get a massive thrill from that. But the, I think the production thing is more a, um, it's scarier as well because you have to sell yourself, and say, I think I can, show a side of you that's never been seen. Yeah. And I, I get that all the time when I, and I've had that forever. When I listen to something, I always have a version of it that it feels like only I can hear. Or if if this and this was different, and it's like I'm not even hearing what they're doing, I'm hearing something else in my yeah. head. And I see that with a lot of people. Um, and I would, yeah, I'd love to get more into that side of things. Anyone on your immediate wish list that you... Oh, there's a lot, Thank actually. I'm kind of scared to say who they are. 
I think me and Barry have been talking about yeah. doing something. Yeah. And I would love to find it. Because you guys have worked together yeah. already. And yeah, that about, was a real highlight of yeah. the church tour, was yeah. meeting Barry and yeah. talking to him and hearing him singing in the last waltz the songs he does and how his voice hits yeah, up into he, this high register. It I just sounds saw him, great. I saw him opening for Eben Sparrow a couple of weeks ago yeah. and he played one of the. Yeah. You know, he talked a bit about it and how yeah. excited he was to be doing it and played yeah. one of the tunes and it sounded pretty great. Like, yeah. And I can imagine with the band behind yeah. it. Yeah, it's oh, incredible. I yeah. mean, his voice is just a. Uh, it's a vehicle, you know. Well, it's that thing, isn't it? He's got the road stories too. He's got mm. the, you know, it's all there. Like the mm. the life has been, it's still being lived, but the life has been lived. Yeah. To, uh, to get to this point. Singing, he really just just worlds and stories. I hadn't seen him. Uh, uh, he's one of my favourites, and I hadn't seen him play for a, a long, long time until the other week when he and he just jumped up and did sort of twenty twenty five minutes mm. acoustic guitar, and I really liked it. I yeah. was like, you know. I've, a handful of Waratah songs, a handful of solo songs. It's mm. like, this, this guy's got some great stuff. You yeah. almost kind of, we almost yeah. sort of forget about that, take it for granted a bit. Yeah, something. I think he's um, he's a he's a heritage act. Without yeah, wanting, that wanting to sound yeah yeah like understanding of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. really a benchmark of a lot of New Zealand yeah consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So he'd be someone you could do something with, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people I hear, and I will was wanting to um, bring out a side of what I hear and then I'd like to work with Jordan Luck and just yeah. instead of basing it on the band, base it on his voice, you know, because this... And his songwriting, yeah, you know, he's a great This songwriter. Irish tradition of singing yes. this sort of thing, you know, that's something I can hear. Yeah. I think yeah. when me and Barry were talking about stuff on the um, tour, he was talking about this sort of low, slow, bluesy thump thing that I do and how he liked that and then we were talking about old bible songs and this whole idea of something darker yeah you know that, yeah. that might be something people hadn't heard out of him before yeah for sure mm. yeah that's it he's always sort of ended up being presented and presenting himself as the happy strummy you know there's there's lonesome mm. in his voice yeah and you know there's a melancholy in some of his mm. songs but uh, some of it's presented is quite happy, strummy kind of. I guess because he's made his crust as being the bar band, you know, yeah, like he's, that's yeah. that's been the avenue. Yeah. But um, there's definitely something. Even hearing him cover the Phoenix Foundation a, a couple of records ago, it was like, mm. this is great. Like mm. this is a song kind of made for him. Mm. It shines the light on the song too, you know, yeah. like it's a good song, yeah. and he's done something different to it. And it's just a little bit different to you know the standard fare yeah. that he puts across. Yeah, I think he's got a really, really deep appreciation of, of music and yeah. and historical idea of music too. And yeah. that's something that isn't isn't as you say presented to. To people, yeah, yeah, as yeah. clearly as yeah. I could hear it in my head. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, well, so you've got a for, for someone who's not really scheduling things um, to punch the clock. You've got a pretty full <laughs> dance card ahead of you, as it yeah, is. Like, I you just know, think that's the way it goes. Yeah. I heard about some artists complaining that they had to do two albums for their record label contract and boohoo and I just thought what the hell's wrong with you just yeah, why did you get into doing write this write the songs <laughs> and get it out of the way it's not hard it's, isn't that what you do you know yeah. so I always think about that I mean it's a full time job and everybody should have a full time work that keeps them occupied so yeah. you'd want to have a full plan you know and you can as well I'm good at talking about ideas and maybe they don't come to pass but 
there's always there's more than enough ideas to do. Well, know. this is it. You can always go back if if it stops being rewarding in any sense financially mm. or you know one sort of plays off against the other. Eh? Like if it's not particularly financially rewarding, there's a an aspect to it that's pleasing people. Like it's good yeah. for their well-being. It's good for their soul, whatever. If it stops, if it, if it starts making a mark on that, you know, go and do another job, but do mm. something else, you know, like mm. fall back. You know, if it's making you miserable, mm. but it's, it, never, it's, it's not, it shouldn't, it, sh- it shouldn't be, right? No. So that's part of why you're doing it is because it's helping keep you alive. Yeah. You know, it's helping you. And, and that's what it strikes me with what you're doing is you're able to flip f- between a few different projects, but they feel very connected. Yeah, you can draw a line, you know. You can, you, mm. you know, you, you you can. You haven't done anything yet where it's like, wow, I didn't expect that guy to do that. It, mm. But at the same time, you're not repeating yourself. Mm. So it's yeah, a, it's all in a pretty pretty straight line, I guess, or a uh, logical progression. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm lucky, you know. I, I talk to people and about music in different ways, and some people I, you know, stuck singing the same songs year after year. That just must be. I don't feel like I have that limitation. I still feel artistically a lot of freedom in what I do. I mean, it doesn't happen so much now, but there's a real bind to having a hit single, isn't there? Mm. You know, it's a real milestone for, you know, imagine having to, you know... There's two arguments. Like, if it really is a big hit single, it's really not too... You know, if it's, you know, those heritage acts where it's it's fed and clothed their children and their children's children well get out Mm. and play it you know like Rolling Stones the Rolling Stones know that they're not leaving the stadium without playing Satisfaction and yet uh, you know no Rolling Stones fan really needs to hear them play that but but they all (laughs) obviously want it but the meat and potatoes yeah that's right but uh, you know I'd rather hear them do Midnight Rambler you know that's far more interesting you know yeah, it's amazing that that band. That's just such a crazy story. The Rolling Stones. They're doing a um. They're sort of teasing at the moment that they're doing this blues album, going back to their mm. very early sort of roots, their yeah. their influences, and there's sort of a a, a discussion around that they're going to put this out, and then that's going to be it. Like really? that's going to be the end. They're wow. gonna... I wonder who they're going to get to produce that. Um. I think it's. I think the project. I'm trying to think who it was. I think it's. I think it's Don was. I think okay. it's. Yeah. I think Great. he's. And um, you know, they've Mick Jagger put a photo up the other day of like a, a harmonica case. You know, filled oh, with all yeah. the different keys with little uh, Rolling Stones guitar pick next to it. And mm. and I know Eric Clapton played with them on mm. something. And and you know that hasn't come out yet. And that's probably part of it. Uh, you know, there are people lining up to say it won't sound very good and then, you oh, know, yeah. they're so far from being a blues band and that, but I think it's quite a nice completion of the circle if they do it. Yeah, you know, I think, totally. Why not? They, they, they don't have to do anything. Like, and they can do what they want. Yeah. They've earned that. Mm. So this could could be quite, you know, who knows if it's going to be good or not, but it's a good idea. Yeah, it is a know? good idea. I reckon it's a good, good full circle. I think the awareness of blues now is much more open than it ever has been. The blues and is sort of its own worst enemy though. Blues purists are sort of well, you know? it's like it's like food. Do you like food? Uh, you know, it's just it's such a huge thing. There's so much in that yeah. scope of that genre. It's it's one word to talk about it. it just doesn't cut it, you know. So yeah. it's like saying, yeah. There's of course there's all spectrums, and then there's the real purists as well. So 
I don't know. Like it's that it's that same thing we face with a lot of genre classification these days that the words are just too loose and people don't even know what the other people are talking about really. Mm. You can you can talk about this sort of blues or that sort of blues or you can talk about this sort of jazz or that sort of jazz or Americana like this or Americana like that. But yeah. There's gonna be stuff you love and hate within all those genres. And it's sort of about how a thing connects with, you know, an audience. Like it's it's uh, you know, if you're gonna cover a blues song, um, there are certain things, certain I think with a New Zealand audience particularly, there are certain things that are gonna go over. Mm. And if you, you know, obviously the quality of the performer is important in that, but if you pick like some Charlie Patton song that they've never heard and you make the decision, well, they should have heard it, um, that, that could actually be a problem. Like, you could get yourself in an mm. area, you know, like, it might not go as well as you thought. But if you have a confidence in yourself as a performer to sell the story mm. of that, you know the story and you play it well and they like what you do, then, then you're fine. But... I don't think there's, what I'm trying to say is I don't think there's a big problem with someone covering Robert Johnson, which is, if they do it well, because that's more part of the mainstream blues story. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, or, or you've got to, even something even more obvious than oh, that, totally, like, like Cocaine or someone yeah, else that a song. absolutely. Like but then I've, I think it comes down to the, and with blues especially, it just comes down to who's doing it and how they do it. it. Yeah. And that's... That the, in that way the, the song or the genre is just a jacket and Look, it's, I don't have a problem with that yeah. like some of that British blues boom stuff I mean I grew up with that some of it doesn't leaves me a little bit cold now but I'm quite happy to listen to Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac still I think mm. they're fucking great you know like yeah. you know obviously I'll go back and listen to the things they were covering because yeah. that's part of the story Yeah. but I'm also ha- happy listening to what they did and how they mm. did it you know yeah, that's that's totally true. I mean, I think yeah, with the blues you can hit anyone. You just pull out some song, and it's about the feeling in the song. Everybody knows those feelings. It's as if you'd never go.
Shut 